From Spa Damer and Tenney, it's White Coat Wellness, a show for doctors who are ready to improve their financial wellness. We know you work hard to help your patients, but you can't be at your best if you don't have your own finances in order. In White Coat Wellness, we highlight real-life stories from physicians and dentists to educate, encourage, and inspire you to personal, professional, and financial wellness. Now, from Spa Damer and Tenney, please welcome your host, Shane Tenney. Well, today we're talking global health and innovation, and I'm excited to introduce a friend and inventor, Dr. Joe Shu. He is the vice chair of quality for the Atrium Health Musculoskeletal Institute, a professor of orthopedic trauma fellows program, and the director of the Limb Lengthening and Deformity Service. And Dr. Shu uh, served as a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army and deployed to Baghdad, Iraq in 2006. He spent the majority of his military career trying to optimize outcomes for limb reconstruction patients and has translated that work into the civilian sector and to his work internationally. Dr. Shu has also focused his research and quality efforts on opioid prescription safety and and even non-opioid strategies for pain management. He's got a really neat story. I'm excited for for you to be with us today, Joe. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Oh, it's an honor to be here and talk about something that I think is... uh has given as much to me as I've given to it. Well, excellent. Why don't we maybe just ask you to start at the beginning a little bit about your early journey into medicine and how you found your your way around the world and eventually to Charlotte. Sure. So my journey through medicine was a little probably unconventional. I had an inkling even as early as high school that I probably wanted to do medicine, but was drawn more to join the military than anything else. And so out of high school, uh, went to West Point. Once I got to West Point, I actually found out that those two goals could be aligned and actually went through a pre-medical program at West Point and was fortunate enough to be selected to go to medical school right when I graduated. Moved to New Orleans and spent about 10 years there training in medical school and residency and fellowship there in orthopedics and orthopedic trauma and limb reconstruction and went back on active duty. I went back on active duty uh, 2004 Um, which, as we know, was a time when the the war in the Middle East was accelerating and spent most of my military career with the honor of treating our nation's wounded warriors through some research connections there and some um, other um, connections. I was able to find my way to Charlotte to continue a lot of that work on the civilian side, uh, translate some of those programs that we developed in the military for a population in need here in the greater Charlotte area. Mm-hmm. And how did that, uh, that training and that experience create the connection that you now have with, with Honduras? Talk a little bit about that. Uh, through some of the connections I had here, people that trained in New Orleans that I knew and other connections were for people with whom I did research on active duty um, in the military that helped to recruit me here. One of the things I actually found interesting about this uh, program here in Charlotte is they actually had an international medical outreach department here, and they actually did not have a significant orthopedic presence. In my active duty time, I actually started going to Honduras as part of what's called medical readiness missions. And through those medical readiness missions, we take a team down to a low, low or and middle income country, and you set up surgical capabilities and execute those surgeries with that team. What I realized, I was fortunate to go to Tegucigalpa, Honduras, a hospital called Hospital Escuela. Um, And just to give you a little bit of information about the scope of trauma at Hospital Escuela, 
our busiest trauma centers in the United States see about seven to 8,000 trauma admissions a year. The, the top busiest trauma centers. They see at Tegucigalpa, Honduras, they see at Hospital Escuela sees about 15,000 trauma admissions a year. So far busier than our busiest U.S. trauma center. And as you can mm-hmm. imagine, not well resourced. And so when I was there, I realized that there was a significant burden of chronic disease. The sequelae of trauma was a real challenge for them, deformity and infection, especially chronic osteomyelitis, um, which was a skill set that not only had I trained on uh, both at my formal training in, in New Orleans, but also some international fellowships in Russia and Italy, but also it was what we did every day for our combat casualties. The severe injuries of war directly correlated to severe injuries that they would see in a low and middle income country and to the chronic nature of disease and infection in those countries. And so my work at home in the military correlated directly um, to that and, and seeing that need there, it seemed to connect. It seemed to connect that maybe we should do something more permanent, more substantial in that environment. And and that really gave birth to the program you now have started or, or had called Restore. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. So the whole concept of Restore is not about what I can do as a surgeon or what my colleagues can do as surgeons. It's all about transmitting those the education and resources to the local surgeons. And that was really the the magic in the mix and at hospital squale is actually had orthopedic surgeons there they had a training program there but they just didn't have the capability to do this high-end limb reconstruction and it was just the right thing the right time a little bit of serendipity and so what we do what we focus on in restore is their their equipment donations that we do and and some other things like that Um, but different than a lot of other people call medical mission work where you go and you do something for a significant number of patients. What ours is, is actually mentoring the local surgeons. And so over the course of the past 10 years, I call it programmed obsolescence. So I've intentionally programmed myself to be obsolete in that surgical scenario because the local surgeons have gotten so good and have mastered, attained and mastered the techniques that we started teaching a decade ago. And so that's the real focus of Restore is to have something that is sustainable in their environment where we're not taking a bunch of first world technology down there and then taking it back when we leave. And so Restore really began, I think, in 2010 or thereabouts with you bringing down a team of people to train the orthopedic surgeons that were sure. already at Hospital Escuela on just advanced techniques and things like that. Is that Am I understanding you correctly? That's right. And a lot of yep. those techniques were techniques that we that I learned in Russia and Italy and refined through working almost daily on our severely wounded combat casualties. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of techniques that they actually needed in that environment for mm-hmm. the chronic problems that they dealt with. And they, they really had a talented core group of surgeons there that wanted the knowledge, that wanted the ability to do those reconstructions. They just had not had that training uh, yet. And what contributes to the prevalence of 
uh, high the high rate of deformity or or need for limb lengthening in Honduras as opposed to the U.S. Yeah, I think it's multifactorial, and the reality is, if if you had to boil it down, it's it's resources, it's it's the economic resources of the country, it's economic resources of the facility, because they're in a situation where you have an overwhelming number of patients, as we discussed earlier, roughly twice or more than twice that of the busiest trauma centers in our country. Yet they have very limited resources, limited access to OR, limited access to implants. And there's also some of the deformity is not even necessarily trauma related, but it also has to do with a situation where access to medical resources are limited. So some of the pediatric diseases become adult diseases there, where in the United States, those are treated as children and have less of an impact on that working age population because they're treated early on in the process. And then there are there are challenges around infection that are, again, multifactorial. A lot of penetrating trauma in that country, a lot of high energy trauma as well, and some issues around optimization of some of the hospital resources as well may contribute to that to include sometimes delays in surgery and, and uh, intermittent challenges with sterility. And so I think that there's a, a host of factors that create a burden of disease there with limb deformity and osteomyelitis that is is pretty significant. Mm-hmm. And and I understand you typically try to go one or tw- once or twice a year down to Honduras and, and work with the the team down there. Last year, I think you were able to take a resident with you, which right. I'm imagining must have been a pretty neat experience for her. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, so I, I used to go more frequently, but. Uh, my uh, significant other <laughs> explained to me that uh, <laughs> I need to spend more time at home and less time in Central America. Mm-hmm. So, but it actually aligned very well. Um, as my local responsibilities here increased, as our family grew, the surgeons there became more and more advanced in their capabilities. And so now my role is less as a surgeon and more as a mentor. And so over time, it's what it's really actually reversed in that the surgeons there, because they have such a tremendous burden of disease, they're doing these complex reconstructions almost on a daily basis. They've become experts at this in a short 10, 10 years, which it, it would take probably twice that long in the U S center to gain that kind of experience. And so now I'm in, in the zone where I am taking down U.S. surgeons or U.S. trainees to learn from them. And I've taken down several attending orthopedic surgeons to learn a variety of techniques and advanced techniques from the local surgeons. And and, it, and it's a sharing relationship, right? When you bring in down an attending surgeon, what one of them is a, a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, Brian Brighton. So Dr. Brighton can go down and teach them about a, a wide variety of pediatric diseases and pediatric orthopedics but some of the really advanced limb lengthening and reconstruction techniques, they actually had more experience. And so they would share together and learn together on a lot of different things. And so that, from my perspective, was great to see. This past year, actually, thanks to your organization, we were able to send down a resident here from Charlotte. She was the first resident, Dr. Sarah Pieri, was the first resident to go down and learn from the surgeons there. And everyone teases me nowadays in the past two or three years 
they're like, well, you barely scrub in surgery anymore. You kind of seem to be an administrator down there. <laughs> and, uh, and that is by design because the local surgeons are the talent now. And so to me, my, I knew that this was working well and this was successful when I see the local surgeons there training one of our residents. Yeah, and and my my role was to take pictures. <laughs> right, <laughs> you've uh, been promoted to the chief photographer. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yep, yep. I'm just I'm trying to imagine kind of the the impact that your work has on the lives of the patients that re- receive the care for such significant disease or deformity. Is there a, a story in particular that maybe you could share with us that stands out to you? So there are a myriad of patient stories that are inspirational, but I think the story that that really sums the whole thing up for me is the story of Myrna Ochoa. And she's actually the head surgeon there in the limb reconstruction division. She was actually a senior resident the first time that I went, but her English was good. And so they assigned her to the American team to help translate for us. And it turned out that she had the skills and the desire and the intellectual bandwidth to really be the lead for this. And so it was a little bit unusual to identify her early. And I went to her chair and I I said, when she graduates, I want her to run this division, which was a little bit of an unusual conversation. And she's done it. The interesting thing to see about that is she's taught and mentored two others of her partners to do this, one pediatric and one adult. And she's She's even in a situation where she can not only mentor and teach near peers, but some of the surgeons that are even older than her. And she's been able to shift that culture there as well. But really the story that I think is the most interesting in addition to the U.S. surgeons that she's taught and the locals. So I was down there. This is probably about, uh, it had to have been about four years ago. And I was down and she was doing a bone transport, which is a technique where you cut the bone and you move it to the limb where there's a defect and the body fills in behind. One of the challenges if you do a bone defect with a significant gap is either the skin or the flap falls down into the gap and gets squeezed between the bone ends as you're transporting them and then can cause some problems with wound breakdown or maybe even need a repeat surgery. And so I was down there and she had a patient undergoing a big bone transport and this patient had sutures in the skin in the area where the bone was being transported underneath the skin and it was lifting up the skin and that those sutures were attached to the frame by an outrigger that she had built and it was very elegantly lifting up the skin and transporting the bone underneath and I started taking all kinds of pictures of it. I was like, this is brilliant. I was like, where did you learn this? This is very similar to a technique that, that I saw in Russia that I don't, I've never used. And there's a, a new adaptation of it. And she had this awkward smile and she goes, you taught this to me almost five years ago. <laughs> so this was a technique that I guess I'd adapted on the fly in Honduras five years prior, had completely forgotten about it because I'd only done it once there with her in Honduras. She had remembered it, put it into practice, and had done it dozens of times. And so I went down, relearned the technique from her, and then brought it back and started using it in my own patients. And and that's what I do now in my own patients. 
And so that, to me, that's, that, that's the beauty of doing this type of work. You've literally replicated yourself so well that you're now reteaching yourself practically. <laughs> <laughs> I, I say, yeah. we, I say we figured it out together. Yeah. And, and then she taught it to me years later. How does the work there in Honduras that you've been a part of, that you've seen, how does that impact your day to day in Charlotte doing surgeries here in the U.S.? What's the perspective like? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the quick answer is I just gave an example of an area where a technique was reborn to me that actually improves the way we're doing the surgery here. I think more importantly, it gave me the perspective of, I think what, what we don't realize, and we as surgeons, we as physicians, we don't realize is how well we're doing affects everything that we do at work. And the work in Honduras, you know, there's a lot of things that we do in life. There's a lot of uh, models for, for burnout and resilience, but the reality is there's a lot of things that empty our cup throughout the day. And there are things that can fill our cup and this work in Honduras. I mean, you can tell how, how the joy and the pride in my voice when I talk about the accomplishments of Dr. Ochoa there, it's not what I did. It's what she does. It's what her colleagues there do that fills my cup. And I think it makes me a better clinician. It makes me a better surgeon. It makes me a better father. It makes me a better husband because it helps center me back into that. You know, we talked about at the beginning, that high school kid that had this inkling that I wanted to do medicine and make a difference. And, and sadly that gets lost in our, in our day-to-day lives a lot of times because a lot, a large part of medicine has become interacting with the EHR and this technology and do this and this regula- this regulation and this score and and that sort of thing. But to have that those experiences that are pure like that and then to bring that back and, and say, hey, what we do is pretty cool for people. And, and I think that that's probably been the biggest thing that that work in Honduras has done to translate back to to really have a positive impact on you know, the patients that we treat here in the greater Charlotte area and, and, and hopefully my colleagues and uh, residents and fellows that I work with to this day. Yeah, that's, uh, that's neat. And I actually want to expound on that a little bit when we come right back from this break. I'm Will Coster, and on this episode's White Coat Wisdom, we're going to be talking about student loans again because it seems like a topic that you can't avoid. Every day on social media or in the news, there seems to be a new headline around student loans. Student loan debt at all-time high, or my favorite, less than 1% of applicants have loans forgiven under Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. Listeners just like you fall victim to the headache, the confusion, and the anxiety that student loans can create. My experience is the best remedy for anxiety around your student loans is to remind yourself of your game plan. First off, do you even have a game plan? Are you going for Public Service Loan Forgiveness? Have you refinanced? All of these questions, when left unanswered, can create uncertainty. However, when you take control of your situation, it's amazing how quickly confidence is restored. If you need help creating your student loan game plan, or you need a second set of eyes, I would suggest calling a professional. One that specializes in physicians or dentists, and one that has history helping people with their student loans. With today's White Coat Wisdom, I'm Will Coster. So, Dr. Shu, you were just talking a little bit about 
the work as a physician and uh, and perhaps for all of us, there's things in our lives that kind of make withdrawals from our energy bank and there's things that make contributions to our energy bank. Our podcast here, of course, is White Coat Wellness. And, and I guess that's the kind of almost the phrase that comes to mind when I hear you talking about the work that you've been able to do in Honduras, really helping to, I guess what I hear you saying is almost make you a better clinician when you're here on a day-to-day basis. I guess maybe pick up there a little bit. What's that concept of of wellness mean and and how does that integrate with kind of what you've been doing? Right. So I alluded to earlier that there are a lot of theories around burnout and resilience or grit. To me, the easiest one to understand is as a a, a non-psychiatrist, non-psychologist, is this concept of hassles versus uplifts, right? So there are so many hassles that we have to deal with during the day that get us into a situation where we get disconnected from our work or disconnected from the purpose of our work. And those are the things that really kind of break us down over time. And this that depersonalization is really one of the first signs of burnout. Well, there are other things that are uplifts. There are these little things that we, that we have, these little bright moments in our day that counteract the hassles. Now, what does that need to be? Does it need to be a one-to-one ratio, a 10-to-one? Sort of depends on who you are as a person. It probably, maybe a hundred to one is is the right (laughs) Depends how big the hassle is. (laughs) And and so what happens is there are things in my life that, but part of it is being aware of when the up when it is an uplift and recognizing it and pausing for a moment and say this is an uplift for me and that's what restore has become restore is a huge uplift for me i'm excited to talk about it as you can tell i do a little bit every day yeah i tell people this kind of work it's not you know i go you go down for a week there's a little bit every day that you're doing logistically on the background and 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 you know electronically mentoring um, the surgeons there but that's an uplift to me. That's not like, oh, this is a hassle. I got to answer this email or WhatsApp. That it it fulfills me to do that. And so, as that is an uplift, it helps with what it helps refocus our purpose, get us back to the why of, of what we do in medicine. The same thing can be said. There are, there are some of the wounded warriors that I'm still in touch with now from the military, and I and I tell people that I draw resilience from my patients, and I have a whole theory about how if we really recognize that one of these people has accomplished and moved on with their lives and displayed tremendous amount of grit, we can draw from that and it gives us purpose in in what we do. And and I think that that's the real challenge with wellness and burnout is losing that purpose, losing that that you get to where that personalization becomes um, a problem and, and, and you start to withdraw from that. And with that said, do you have a suggestion for maybe a doc listening to us now who says, yeah, depersonalization, I deal with that every day, or yeah. they, they're beginning to resonate with maybe your comments there or some of the publicity around the issue of stress, exhaustion, anxiety, burnout. What suggestion, what tip would you have based on kind of your career and, and spots where maybe you felt the same thing that they might do to combat that? I think most of the most of the focus on it has been this concept of work-life balance. But the reality is this, the majority of the waking hours of your life are going to be at work, really no matter you know what what your work is. And so my strategy has been to find these uplifts at work. And not only do I find them, but I'm willing to share them with other people. And that's something that is a little bit different. We're taught this tremendous humility as, as physicians, right? 
if a patient does well, you know, you just, it's almost considered bragging to tell someone, hey, look what this patient did. But the reality is the rest of the team needs that, needs you to share that story as well. Because the nurses, the technicians, the same people that deal with the same struggles that we're dealing with, they don't get to know what happens to the patient. They don't get to know that that patient went on and got married and had and got to walk down the aisle because we fixed her limb. They don't get to know that. And so sharing that not only helps me, but it's going to help the rest of the team. So I think that that's one of the tips that I give people is, is first and foremost is recognizing you've got to find that in your work. It can't just be I'm going to, I'm going to take a vacation or I'm going to do more yoga and all things that I encourage people to do. And I try to do myself, but finding that, finding that in your own work and sharing those stories with other people. Mm-hmm. The other thing is because of this humility barrier that we feel in medicine, sometimes if a patient thanks you, we downplay that thanks a lot of times, but the reality is it's important for that patient to give that thanks. That is part of their healing process for the grateful patients to, to give that thanks. It's also important for us to accept it. And I think that that's a real challenge is we often, it's downplayed for the most part. And there are strategies to doing it. There are strategies to accepting the thanks. Like, you know, I, I tell people, thank you for extending your gratitude. That means a lot to me. It's a huge team effort. You know, we're fortunate to be able to care for for people like you that are so motivated to, to do well and and we played this part and and I'm mm-hmm. glad that we were able to work together on this. And and that may be a, a more comfortable strategy for someone who is not willing to take that thanks or has not been taught to take that thanks. It's not mm-hmm. really something that we really do in healthcare. And in reality, when you open that conversation with a patient, you realize how meaningful you are to that patient in their lives. And that's why we got into medicine in the first place. We got into medicine for that meaning. We got into medicine for that connection. And then we lose it through all of the different processes and the requirements and the regulation and the technology that actually we doesn't seem to work. I, I, I don't know what the barrier is in medicine, but if you put medical before the word technology, it usually is not technology. <laughs> right, so, right. so those are things that uh, hopefully moving forward, some of the work that we're trying to do is to help fix some of those interfaces to improve that. But that's that's a pretty heavy lift moving forward. Yep. Yep. I th- your comment on gratitude is so profound because gratitude has uh, healing powers, I think, for the person giving and for the person receiving it. Absolutely. And in, in some ways, I can't think of a better way to uh, adjourn our conversation today and uh, and the work that you've done. So thanks so much for being with us today. I really appreciate hearing just a bit of your story. And of course, uh, I'm sure folks can find you online or track you down through uh, Twitter if uh, they want to connect with you more. That sounds great. Thank you for uh, taking the time today. Absolutely. Thanks. I'm Will Coster, and on today's White Coat Achievements, a segment that highlights noteworthy achievements by your friends and colleagues, we'd like to give a shout out to two female physicians who have given women in medicine a voice, a safe space on social media to share in triumphs and victories, but also to lend a word of encouragement when faced with adversity in the workplace. Dr. Melissa Parsons and Dr. Alexander Mannix are the co-founders of SheMD. They launched CMD in 2018 during their time as emergency medicine residents at the University of Florida. 
SheMD is a website and social media community that centers around encouraging female physicians. SheMD focuses on education to help break gender disparities in medicine and helps mentor future female physicians. SheMD has actually featured almost 90 different authors in under a year. They have quickly grown quite a following, and we think it is worthwhile to give them a white coat achievement shout out. As always, if you know someone who wears a white coat and is achieving something noteworthy, please drop us a line. We'd love to hear about it. Might even feature them on a future episode. But again, this episode's white coat achievement goes to Dr. Melissa Parsons and Dr. Alexandra Mannix for what they're doing on SheMD. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of White Coat Wellness. Uh, You can stay in touch with us and other colleagues, dentists and physicians interested in financial wellness through our White Coat Wellness Facebook group. Uh, The link is in the show notes. You can follow me on Twitter at Shane underscore Tenney. And if you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Shu, would you mind giving us a shout out or a good review on Apple iTunes or Google Play? That'd be super helpful. Also, make sure to subscribe so you won't miss any of our future doctor stories. And if you have ideas, questions, suggestions for future topics or guests, you can drop me an email directly at shane at whitecoatwell.com. Thanks. We'll see you here next time. This episode of White Coat Wellness is over, but you're not alone on your journey toward financial wellness. Spa Dame Rinteni has been helping physicians and dentists with their financial planning for over 60 years. And we'd love to answer any questions that would be of help to you. Visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Once again, that's sdtplanning.com. And we'll see you on the next episode of White Coat Wellness.